This is the Illuminate Podcast, a Sandy Boy production. Each week on the Illuminate Podcast, the hosts will bring you insightful conversations and stories of people who are illuminating their own lives through their business, work, community, family, and world. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Illuminate Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Lindsay Hine, and today you're listening to episode 121. This podcast is part of the Sandy Boy Productions Podcast Network, and we are so glad you're here. Today, we are re-airing an episode that we are so excited to share. Um, This was episode one of the podcast, so if you're new here, you probably haven't caught that episode. Uh, When we had big dreams of this show, George Sruer was one of the people I knew I wanted to interview. He is the chief dreamer for Building Tomorrow, which is a nonprofit organization bringing access to inclusive, transformative education to children in underserved areas. And in this episode, we learn about George's vision for Building Tomorrow and how the dream became a reality after a small fundraiser that turned into something much bigger. I loved hearing about how his parents raised him to be curious about the world and not just the community he grew up in. George is super humble, but man, he is doing some big things and he's got a great team around him. I really hope you enjoy this episode and we thank you so much for being here. If you do love this podcast, share it with your friends and leave us a rating and review. All right. Enjoy my conversation with George Sruer. You're my first interview for the Illuminate podcast. Here we go. How do you feel about that? Uh, highly honored. I'm sure at some point this is going to come back to be sort of the um, seminal moment for for your <laughs> uh, Illuminate podcast career. So we're talking with George Sruer today. Did I get the last That's name? That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to keep you around actually if you don't mind. Sounded better than I say it. I've put a lot of practice into that last name because your wife, Kristen, has been on my other podcast, I'll Have Another, with Lindsay Hine, and I practiced that last name over and over again to get it right in her intros, and I feel like I finally have it down. Well, I think that you've done an admirable job, so thank you. So George is the chief dreaming officer? What chief do we call dreamer. It? Chief, chief dreamer at Building Tomorrow, and... I have the privilege of actually being his real life personal friend. (laughs) So George and I are in a supper club together and uh, we got to know each other through that. through some mutual friends and I can't believe I get to be friends with someone who does the cool things that you do in your life. And I know you're so humble. It's a two way street. It's a two way street. Tell everybody what you pictured this interview to look like actually. (laughs) Um, I was sort of envisioning uh, the Larry King type microphone and sort of you <laughs> leaning in and um, really asking me some really pressing questions. Um, so I'm sure those are to come, but the, <laughs> you know, the, it looks a little bit different. It's a little bit more relaxed than I, I had thought. He's describing my setup here. It's, it's a little bit of a hot mess. All right, George, I want to hear all about building tomorrow. This is one of the biggest reasons we've brought you on the show. Uh, so before we get into that though, tell us about your life growing up. You grew up here in Indianapolis, but now you spend much of your time in Uganda where your work is. 
So tell us about life growing up. Yeah. Uh, life growing up is, I mean, I'm, I have always been extremely proud to come from Indianapolis. Um, it's a amazing city that I think you begin to appreciate as you get older and older. And so I, I had the, had the chance to grow up here, um, Went to North Central High School, uh, amazing place where not only did I meet some really fascinating people, but also had a pretty incredible education and was exposed to a lot of um, a lot of the world uh, in a lot of different ways. Um, and it also is quite helpful that both my parents are from Lebanon, and so as a family travel was always something that we uh, we enjoyed, that we did often, that we really uh, didn't take for granted. And so uh, after going to college at William and Mary and having the chance to spend my summers doing some pretty incredible things, working with Special Olympics, um, spending some time uh, doing different things in D.C., and then eventually having the chance to spend a summer working for the World Food Program, uh, that, that's sort of where the, um, the inkling and the imagination of what Building Tomorrow could be began. Okay, so you say when you went to North Central, you're exposed to much of the world. What does that mean? Is that does that do you think some of that has to do with being in a public school in the city? Like what? What do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's so certainly one of the things that I loved about my experience was that diversity was such a central part of what you saw, um, wh whether it was walking around the hallways or having actual conversations. Um, there was a sense that you were being exposed to people who were from all over the world, who believed different things, who came from different backgrounds, um, had different means, and everyone was in one place. When that passing period bell rang, mm -hmm. everything was thrown into one hallway. And I think that's something that we don't do enough of anymore in the world, or we don't have a chance to be exposed to that. And I think that's a, I think it's unfortunate because I, I think that, was a played a tremendous hand in sort of shaping my view of the world. Yeah. Do you find that that's going to be something that's really important for you now that your dad, like where your son Gabe goes to school? Totally. Totally. Because yeah. I think it, it really helps frame your perspective and what becomes important to you and how you see things. And I think, and especially in a day and age where we increasingly struggle with being able to appreciate and honor people who see things differently than we do the chance to be exposed to that on a really frequent basis plays a really integral part in that. Yeah, that's so important. I'm in this like deconstructing, reconstructing phase in my life where I'm actually learning like, oh, maybe not every single thing your parents taught you is the way the world actually works and the way things you have to actually sure. believe. Yeah. Um, and it's easy to grow up in your little bubble and then kind of take that on with you for the rest of your life. Not that the things my parents taught me were wrong, but oh, as but an adult, yeah. Yeah, and you've you've got an informed perspective now. So you see things in a different light than, than perhaps they were presented to you. And I think giving, you know, I think what was so unique about the uh, experience that I had growing up was that... Um, you were sort of given the platform to begin to create those experience, those those experiences and opinions uh, for yourself, and I think yes. that's something which we increasingly need to do more of. What do you think your parents did right in that regard, as far as 
letting you have the freedom to form your own opinions and and how do you think your parents played a role in you wanting to grow in this like worldwide uh, business and organization, your view of the world not just being where you live in Indy or where you live in America, but just everywhere? I mean, I think one of the biggest and, and most important lessons that I learned growing up, and this was never a single dinner conversation or whatnot, was just that you don't take what's in front of you for granted. Um, and and that was reinforced in a lot of different ways. Um, but I think that's become such a fundamental aspect of what we, you know, of, of what we do at Building Tomorrow and sort of the way that I think I try to, the perspective I try to bring to, to the work that we do is that we're oftentimes in positions of great resource and wealth and and ability and how do you leverage that to do the greatest amount of good all right so building tomorrow you guys build schools in east africa and uganda 77 schools correct so we um we have 77 that are open we have another five on which we're currently working so brings us to a total of 82 okay so tell us the vision for building tomorrow give us the details on what exactly you do and how it came about so I was the the how it came about part is um, interesting and both sort of integral and in understanding what we do today. Uh, I was interning with the World Food Program and was, and what are they? And it's one of the largest, if not the largest, organization in the world that provides humanitarian assistance to people all over the world. At the time, um, they were feeding about 150 million people in a bunch of different hot spots and places that were chronically uh, underserved. Uh, when I was there. And so I had a really unique experience. I had the chance to intern with them in Rome and see what they were doing from a policy level, from sort of a headquarters perspective, and then had a chance to go to Uganda and actually see firsthand what was a new program in 2005, which was a school feeding program, basically giving kids food in exchange for coming to class. Okay. And it was fascinating because it turned out to be one of the single most important ways in which kids who were out of school would come back to school, partly because it promised kids a meal. But the other piece about this, which I thought was really interesting, was that kids were also able to bring a food ration home. So their members of their family were also getting food in exchange for being in class. And that helped tip the scales in favor of parents allowing their kids to come to school, which had largely been uh, one of the first things that wouldn't happen because parents were really concerned about how they were going to be able to provide for their family. And they saw their kids as a means to be able to help provide for that. Because their kids would work. Kids would work. They'd go to market. They would be doing a number of things. Um, and so that was really my first exposure to um, one of the other things I noticed while I was there, which is that this so-called school in which these kids were learning was a pretty um, in pretty dire straits, um, a building that was largely falling apart, held together in some places by pieces of cardboard from USAID boxes of, of food products that had been used. And so they were covering up holes and um, they had four classes in one area, uh, one big room basically and each class would meet in a corner and there were probably 100 to 120 kids in each of those classes and so as a teacher you're trying to harangue your you know get get everyone um, focused and 
that's a difficult thing to do when essentially you have 400 kids in one space and you're trying to teach in one corner. And so walking through that school said, hey, you know, I was asking the head teacher, what would it take? Or have you thought about what it would take to rebuild this school? And they, uh, the woman, Noelina, the head teacher said, yeah, it would be about $10,000. And so I sort of filed that in the back of my head. And that combined with another comment that was made by a member of her staff, um, which was, you know, we see a lot of you people and mm. Mzungus, which is a, a term that they use for a Westerner. Uh, we see a lot of you people once, but you never come back. Mm. And so putting those two together, I thought, well, I don't want to be that one guy uh, who who comes, takes photos and mm-hmm. um, sees what there is to see and not do anything about it. And so went back to school. Um, so you're in college. I was at in the college, time. yeah. My se- went back to William Mary for my senior year, and we had this idea to raise ten thousand uh, bucks. I had two friends of mine who joined me. Um, we put up a bunch of signs around campus that simply said a dollar and eighty one cents, um, which was really sort of a way to get people to think, what in the world are they doing, and why do they need a dollar and eighty one cents. And it was uh, a little bit of simple math we did, which was we had 5,500 students on campus. If everyone gave us a dollar and 81 cents, we could rebuild the school. Wow. So did you get like, did you we, get your donations in that fashion? Um, you know, we, we got a lot of $2 donations uh-huh. and we didn't give 19 cent refunds. So we <laughs> kept the change, which was helpful. Um, but then we actually, you know, we were really fortunate. We ended up, um, there was a, a woman who was with the Associated Press. She wrote a story about what we were doing. Uh, and it happened to hit the wire two days before Christmas. Mm. And my two friends and I actually flew to Uganda. We were going to give the money on Christmas Day to these kids that that were going to benefit. And we knew that we were leaving with enough money to do this, but it was probably, I want to say it was like, let's say $14,000, $15,000 that we'd raised. And by the time we got to... Uganda, this story was on CNN and the New York Times and the Washington Post. And all of a sudden, we had raised over $40,000 from people who were sort of moved by this. And this was before online giving even. Um, so yeah, the game changer, while, right? Right. Yeah. So it's just a shame we never had that to to, to yeah. Use think about it. how much you would have raised. We would have been a lot better spot. But um, it was really it was really awesome, and it was so fun to see how people really thought this was something that they could get behind, that it was important that they should support. So we were able to rebuild what was um, the, that one school meeting point, Kampala, and it gave me the idea that maybe there was more work like this to be done. Um, so it became sort of the focal point of what I started doing after I graduated. Building Tomorrow, is this the first job? I'm still on my first job out of college. Okay. Yeah. I knew you were really young. Yeah. But I, you know, that's why. Not this, anymore. Yeah. <laughs> this interview is so fun because I know what you do. I know building tomorrow a little bit. Yeah. But I didn't even know that backstory. That's so cool. Yeah. Are the two friends that you did this with, are they still involved at all or do they support in any way? You know, they're still, uh, I think I would say they're, they're quite devoted fans. Still hear from them from time to time. Um, and uh, I know one of them is is a teacher, so I think there was a little bit of, um, you know, 
some serendipity probably mm-hmm. in what we do mm-hmm. and what they continue to do. Okay. So obviously going to Uganda on that trip is what changed your heart and your way of thinking for why you wanted to be in Uganda. Um, did it ever occur to you to do it anywhere else or were you just stuck with in that, you know, in that country because of your experience there? Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I think it was, I never felt stuck per se, but I always felt like that was a window of opportunity that we should take advantage of because I knew that the need was great, but I didn't know exactly how to go about doing it. How does one figure that out at such a young age? It's It seems so, there's so many experiences and opportunities in our life where we're like, oh man, I wish I could do something about that. But we don't feel like we're equipped or we're too scared or we're too young. We have excuses. So at the age of what, 22, how were you, how did you have the tenacity to say, I'm actually going to do this? Well, I mean, let's paint the picture, right? Like I had virtually nothing to lose. I was living with my parents. Um, I had been given, I I, I applied for and won uh, about $30,000 to help sort of start an idea that could lead to social change. Um, And I didn't know any better. So it was really a con like it was I, I think it was sort of a confluence of a whole bunch of things that helped lead to 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 me being able to do this and and being able to find the right people, which I think is so critically important to be able to lead the work to where it is today. Do you think raising that money relatively easy? I mean, obviously you put a lot of work into it, but that first stint in college, did that give you the dream that, oh, if I could do this in college by asking people to donate a dollar eighty one, did that give you the the encouragement you needed to think of how much more you could do? I think definitely it gives you a sense of, well, hey, this is possible. So what you yeah. know, what what could I do? And and I had always been engaged, like I, you know, in, in high school raised money for UNICEF and um supported Special Olympics through some fundraisers and things through the year. So raising money was always, it wasn't something that really struck me as intimidating. Mm -hmm. Um, What was far more intimidating was actually figuring out what, like how would this actually work mechanically? Like how could you actually go halfway around the world and and get a school built? Yeah, Um, and you live here. You live in Indianapolis. You frequently go to Uganda. Um, I know there's a complicated answer, but in the most simplistic way, how do you do it? And how did you get it off the ground? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest piece is you just find... I mean, I think this is so, so true of leadership in general, is that the best thing you can do for the work you're trying to further is just find people who are much more talented than you are and try to help give them a sense of where where we want to go and, and make that happen. And, and I think that's been the case for Building Tomorrow. Um, one of the, the sort of the co-founder, I would say, Joseph Kalisa, our country director, was someone who I had the chance to meet very early on. And we together, you know, I, I my initial idea was, hey, let's go build schools for kids who are HIV positive. Um, what better thing is there to do than to help make sure that a kid who is HIV positive has a school to go to? And, you know, we were sitting and, and I, I probably give a harsher a sort of revisionist story about how this went, but Joseph was basically like, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. And, and he never said those express words, but I could, in retrospect, I can sort of uh, hear him saying that in a much kinder way now, because it was a silly move. It was a, it was a very naive 
thought because one of the things I hadn't accounted for was the fact that kids are very uh, in in Uganda. A lot of parts of the world are are really proud to put on a particular school uniform, and it means a lot for them to be going around in yellow or blue i mean they this is something that you'll see in all of the photos and everything that we we have around and it's one of the things that joseph mentioned is if you have students who are all wearing blue and then there's another school nearby and they all wear green and the kids in green know that the kids in blue are hiv positive you've actually done those kids a greater disservice because you've labeled them and yep. you've you've attached a stigma that's really strong still in this in this part of the world especially at the time and uh and so you could say that maybe you haven't really benefited those kids uh just hearing the story i'm like wow like talk about calling you out and now that you're re- you're telling this story and you're you're just pretty humble about it i mean to be able to retell that story, I feel like I would be embarrassed to not have. No, I mean, you listen, know what I my, mean. I mean, my my time is filled with embarrassing moments. <laughs> I mean, truly, and I think that's where you learn. Yeah, like that's that's a lot of where you sort of sit back and say, okay, uh-huh. um, you know, we another one that comes to mind. We opened our first school, and that that day, um, the day actually the day before, we we were all busy trying to clean it. We had the U.S. ambassador coming to help us open. Um, this school and and a lot of sort of pride on the line and and it didn't look as good as we wanted it to and so I was there in a building tomorrow t-shirt and uh, we were cleaning poles that had cement on them and then getting the floors looking nice and as I had my back turned one of the one of the future students was there and I could hear her sounding out the back of my t-shirt and so building tomorrow and at the time we used a tagline um, underneath building tomorrow that said um, for the benefit of vulnerable children Mm. and while i'm while i'm listening to her and i'm trying to do what's in front of me i stop because i knew what was going to come next Mm -hmm. and it's very chilling to hear someone who you hope can benefit from your work read a label that you've given them and that you've said that they're vulnerable. Mm. And so that, you know, the first thing I did when I got home is we, we struck that from all of our materials and never used that term again because there was something that was really stark about hearing a child uh, a, a future student sound out the word vulnerable on the back of my t-shirt. What's the tagline now? So uh, we don't have one. We're just, we're just building tomorrow. <laughs> you are not labeled at all. <laughs> You're not, no, I mean, you know, we talk about, we talk about working in underserved, underserved communities. Yeah. Um, but, you know, again, a, a great intention, but just a really poor, poor execution um, of trying to help frame for some what the work is that we're doing Um, and I think it's one of the one of the greatest challenges of our work is to make sure that we we properly can identify the work that we do in the places in which we work so that a donor in the west can understand what it is and a person in Uganda can feel respected and bridging that gap there's it's a huge gulf but you have to figure out how you bridge that gap how many staff members do you have 
So there are five of us here in the U.S. Okay. And we have about 130 in Uganda, uh, including our fellows, which make up about 100 of our folks there. Okay. Talk about the importance of the people on the ground in Uganda being from that culture and that community. Yeah. So, you know, it's a really fascinating decision that a lot of organizations like ours make uh, where they have to basically say, you know, it's important for us to uh, we, we really want to have an expat. We want to have someone from the U.S. or Britain or somewhere else come in and help provide the leadership for this organization, or we're going to really go with sort of a locally led model. And um, we, we're an organization that one of, our, one of our core sort of strategic anchors is the idea that anything we do can be locally led and that it is sustainable. And so if we really think that's important. We've got to walk the talk. And so we made a very conscious decision very early on that our our staff would be Ugandan uh, in Uganda because we, when we start talking about how important it is to cultivate leaders and how um, we believe that change can happen when you empower a lot of people to get behind this work, that if the people representing your organization in country don't look like what you mm, <laughs> what mm-hmm. you're talking about then you're just a you know you're, you're essentially a hypocritical uh, organization and we didn't ever want it to go down that road so it's really important to us and i think luckily it's something that we're starting to see more and more of which is organizations that have uh have a support function like us who are here in the states but are really led internally by really strong local leaders and that's something that we can't say enough about terms of our belief that it's fundamentally important. And as part of that too, I'm, I'm thinking it's probably another side to it, but you're also creating jobs in Uganda. Of course. Yeah. yeah. I mean, every, you know, every school that opens, you have, um, you have eight new teaching positions that are open there. Um, through the construction that we do, mm-hmm. certainly mm-hmm. there are lots of, of jobs that are created. Um, and then obviously through our own, you know, a hundred and some staff members is no small feat as well. Um, and so being able to keep those, uh, you know, being able to bring those folks on, especially our fellows for a couple of years at a time, I think it's really beneficial and it helps them um, really figure out how they may be able to even create opportunities for themselves after their time with building tomorrow so that it's not just them seeking a job, but creating a job. Yeah. So talk about how education is the game changer of, uh, I don't know how many years ago, maybe 10 years ago, the book Half the Sky came out. Have you read that book? Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and it, I know a lot of that book talks about women and education. And um, what what is it about education that is the game changer? Yeah. Well, I mean, the, you know, the truth is that if you didn't have one, this podcast would mean nothing to you. It would just be a whole bunch of sound coming mm-hmm. through and it would be very difficult to appreciate um, appreciate storytelling and everything else that comes with it. We know that education has a profound impact, especially in, in the developing world. Um, in communities in which we work, we, you know, our, our country director, Joseph, always says that uh, education is like a social vaccine. We know that for every year of schooling that a child gets, their lifetime earnings will increase by 10%. Each year. Each year. Um, that further accelerates when they get past, you know, when they get all the way through primary school and get into secondary school. Uh, We know that a girl's likelihood of contracting HIV is halved 
if she completes a full cycle of primary school. Um, so education, in addition to providing the basic stepping stones to know how to read and write and do basic math, uh, is, is truly a game changer, especially in communities where um, generations have not had the opportunity to get an education. Can you tell me someone who goes through, like, what is the highest year in school that Building Tomorrow has? So for us, it's seventh grade. Seventh grade. Um, we're essentially from a nursery level all the way through seventh grade. Oh, I saw a picture of some of the nursery students on Instagram. Uh-huh. So cute. Uh, they finish Building Tomorrow, seventh grade. What does that look like in that culture? You know, here in America, we finish seventh grade, we go to eighth grade. And you yep. know, so what does it look like there? And then what does their job opportunity look like from that point on? So, um, you know, one of the, um, we, we as an organization have chosen to focus on primary okay. school. Um, and part of that's because in a place like Uganda, seven out of every 10 kids who start primary school will never finish. Okay. So the the primary completion rate is still woefully abysmal and we think that being able to do you know we, we know we know that if you're gonna make a difference in a child's life you have to do it early there's so much that's dictated by the first six years of their life and being able to give them a strong uh, educational footing is really imperative to help them be able to pursue things that come after primary school so in Uganda, you sit for a primary leaving exam at the end of seventh grade, which really dictates where you're able to go after that. And if you perform well, um, you're able to go on to secondary school where you would complete four years. If you've done well after those four years, you can get another two years. Uh, and then if you're done well at that point, then you're able to go into university. Um, but, you know, it's really fascinating because a place like Uganda, unemployment for college graduates two years after they're out of school is over 65%. Hmm. So um, it's a real challenge for people to be able to find jobs once they have gone through the whole cycle. Um, but not very many kids. You know, I think I want to say about 3 to 4% of the population actually has the chance to go through college. Okay, question about that, though. When I hear that, it makes me wonder, well, why would I want to finish anyway if the unemployment rate is so high if I do graduate? What's your, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think a couple of things. So that's a natural thought process. Um, and it's one of the reasons why we believe that the work that we do must be done in concert with a whole bunch of other organizations that are doing really good work around being able to provide access not only to secondary school, but, you know, a colleague of mine who runs an organization, um, one of their big focuses is on entrepreneurship and how do you create, how do you open doors that don't already exist today? Um, Joseph, again, our country director always says, you know, in Uganda, we are taught, um, not how to create a job, but to seek a job. And changing that paradigm mm -hmm. is something that's really important. And you think about in our own context in the U.S., you know, how many, um, you know, how many people are working at Amazon today, but they're working at Amazon because someone, you know, had this crazy pipe dream that this is the way that commerce could be and could look in X number of years. Thank God for him, whoever, or Jeff, her, whoever, yeah. whoever so, they are. Right. So, so it, it's, this, it's this idea that um, we need to be more helpful in framing for people what entrepreneurship looks like and what job creation looks like. Um, 
but the point that you raise is really is one that we struggle a lot with because it's the reason why a lot of girls especially aren't in school. And if you'll remember a couple of minutes ago, I gave you a couple of statistics about why it's important for girls to be in school, even if it means that when they finish, it's going to be harder for them to find a job. Right. But if I can make sure they're healthier, mm-hmm. they're able to earn more over their lifetime, like that's really going to put them in a completely different place. And we oftentimes get stuck in the West looking at what success looks like with a predisposition to what success looked like for us. Mm. Right. So there's a certain cultural expectation of you going to college, depending on where you're living and where your family's known and so forth. And that's something that we sort of live with and sometimes don't recognize until we start casting our own experience on what other people um, should look like. So we, we love, we think it would be awesome for every kid to go on to secondary school. We think it'd be awesome if all of our kids became college graduates. We know that the reality doesn't, isn't going to allow for that. So how can we best prepare students to be, to live healthy and productive lives? What's the organization your friend runs that you mentioned? Uh, That one's called Educate. Educate. Okay. Uh, I have a question about mission trips that I feel like has been kind of like a maybe a hot button topic in the past like five, ten years. Uh-huh. Uh and I I have I have my own thoughts about this, but you see people in the Western world going on these short term mission trips. And like you mentioned when you were in Uganda and the woman said to you, Oh, we see you over here and then we never sure. see you again. Yep. My feelings I, I get the argument that like, is it really impactful if you go once and is it more actually beneficial for you because you're getting the experiences as someone who lives in the United States. But my thought also is to see a 15-year-old kid go on a trip like that, that they may have raised money to get there from people. Sure. It might then change their worldview for the rest of their life and they become the next George Sruer. So Poor kid. <laughs> But I also see the argument where it's like, why are you raising money to just go experience that and then come back here and never go back again? So I just want to, I just want to know your thoughts on this issue. And you have you see, read articles and you hear oh, people yeah. talk no, about this? Oh yeah, no, I mean, we're yeah. we're sort of in the, we oftentimes get asked about this, and I think, um, so you know, there's this there's this belief that um, there's a lot of what we call volunteerism, mm-hmm, you know, people mm-hmm. who are sort of volunteering their time to go do something, um, and and I, I don't think that all experiences are negative, mm-hmm. but I think it is really important to understand a, key, a few real key pieces. And the first is that mission implies that this trip is about helping somebody else, right? And the truth is, is like I guess the question I would ask is, are we? Is that what this trip is about? Because in the description that you gave, yeah, is it important for the fifteen-year-old to go see a different part of the world? Um, it might be. And if that's what we're doing, then let's call it what it is. Because maybe that is different than actually doing something that someone is, feels compelled is is necessary. Um, I think the other the other piece is who's actually running this and who's who what's this look like? There are organizations that live, people get paid, their livelihoods depend on X number of people taking trips with them. And that to me is a real problem because um, 
it's not congruent, at least with the, our worldview of how we see things and the fact, again, that our work must be locally led and sustainable. Mm-hmm. So do we take people to Uganda? Of course we do. Um, we don't take them there under the pretense that they are the missing link and that if they don't go, that school's not going to get built. Um, quite the contrary, our schools will be always built by the communities that we serve because there's a lot of, um, there's a lot to be said about the value of that happening. And if we, you know, when we do take people, um, it's under a completely different pretense than, than that. So I I just think it's, I think traveling and seeing the world is extremely crucial and very important and something that I always would endorse. Just think the way that we do that and the expectations that we have of who's actually benefiting from Mm -hmm. that experience are worth keeping front and center. So when you do take a group, for instance, our friends, Emily and Aaron Reddington, they came to Uganda and Emily described it totally as a a trip. That's what she said. And they, in their experience there, they did lots of touristy things and they also visited Building Tomorrow. And that was probably really important for how they saw what your organization was doing because they would have never been able to truly see it here. Right. So what what are those trips when you do organize people coming? What does that look like? Yeah, so I mean, that's... You know, a great uh, a great example of a trip that we run with the intent of showing them what we do. So on that trip, we spent a day at one site that was in the middle of being built. Um, it was, I think, a, a good experience for them to meet firsthand the people who were actually responsible for the building. Um, I think if there's one thing that we also do on our trips that's a little juxtaposition to a traditional mission trip is we do a pretty good job of illustrating for someone coming from the West why they probably have a snowball's chance in hell of actually being able to do the work that's necessary to build the school. So Mm -hmm. it's like the anti-mission trip in a way. (laughs) Um, Because, you know, we've got, you know, our, all of our foundations for the buildings that we have, for instance, are dug by hand by pickaxe. And um, we, Generally, the people who are going to see our work are not accustomed to that kind of hard labor and, and doing that work. So um, the opportunity for them is to see our work firsthand. They get to go see a school that's already operating, see what that looks like, um, and and then also interact with our staff and ask questions about sort of the work that we do and what that looks like. And again, we, you know, we do about one of those trips a year usually, okay. just depending on, on sort of the critical mass of people that we feel like we need to get there to see our work. Um, and it is important. I mean, it's important to, to get people who are invested in our work and they're invested because they have this, they've had this personal experience. Um, but it's not something that we get in the habit of, of doing because, um, there's a lot more damage that's created for the, our staff who are in Uganda every day. If we take a team and have them work at a site for a week and then, um, they happen to see all these foreigners coming in and doing this work and think that maybe it's no longer necessary for them to be doing a lion's share of the work and then the project stalls. Yeah. And that's not, you know, that's not what we're about. Let's be honest. You're not out there saying, I'm George, I'm the founder of this organization, you know, and, and Emily who, who visited building tomorrow, she's even told me, like George just walks around and like people don't act like he's any big deal or they don't even act like they know who he is. And I think that's a really important quality in a leader to not be constantly 
wanting the praise and, you know, so how do you, clearly you have a vision for how you probably want to be viewed by the organization, the people supporting it. How does that work in your life? Well, I mean, that's precisely the reason that we're here in Indianapolis having this conversation because I'm not well placed to, you know, I think one of the first things that a leader has to do is understand where do they add most value? Where, what can they leverage to, to help enable this work or the vision of the work be successful? And I am not from Uganda. I don't know you know, outside of getting myself into trouble, I can't speak in Lugandan or Luganda. Um, What's what language do they speak? I, Luganda is one okay. of the seven languages in Uganda and you that's don't speak official. It. Um, I don't. Um, I there are a lot of things that I don't bring to the table, but when I cross the ocean and I'm here, there are things that I can do on behalf of our team in Uganda that help enable their work to be successful. Um, whether it's the fundraising piece, whether it's storytelling, whether it's, you know, amassing sort of or pulling together a team of people that can support the work that's happening in Uganda. That's where my value add is. And that's where I can bring the best um, of my talents and leverage them for what's happening in Uganda. So um, the, the beauty of that is that our, you know, again, we have a completely Uganda team who's front and center doing our work um, and representing the work that we do. And, you know, to the point you made, and perhaps what Emily was, was referencing, I, I, one of the greatest joys of mine is going to a site that we've built and being given a tour by the head teacher. Um, despite the fact that I've probably seen the plans, I've seen a school that looks like this and I've had, I've, I've had an operating knowledge of this school coming around for, let's say a year and a half but there's something really awesome about the pride that either this head teacher or even people who are a part of the construction have in showing you as a guest what they've created. And honestly, that's sort of what we're all about is just being able to lift up the communities and the people that we work with and allow them to take ownership of, of this idea. What does your day-to-day look like? I know it's never the same and you're constantly on an airplane and you're meeting with board of directors, but you know, like what does it kind of look like day to day? No, I mean, it's, it is a, I think that's what keeps it exciting. Some days are, you know, you're working hard and you're never in the office and other days you're sort of pounding on a keyboard, trying to make sure that your next um, expression of interest or grant proposal makes sense and is congruent to where you, where you want to go. Um, but I, I think what's fascinating is that the day, feels in a lot of senses like it never ends because you wake up and your colleagues in Uganda have been at work already for five, six hours. They're sort of waiting for you to get up if there's something that they need from you. Um, And with, you know, we're in a unique position of having donors who sort of span the globe. Um, And so getting emails at odd hours of the evening or whatnot and having to turn those things around. We work with people whose work days are Sunday to Thursday versus Monday to Friday. So um, it makes for, as you said, two days that aren't really ever the same and trying to keep up with all the things that are happening in different parts of the world that need to keep going so that our work can continue. Do you ever wake up in the morning and think, how the heck am I going to do everything I'm supposed to do today? 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> I say that because I feel like that sometimes, and I I think I do about half the things that you do. No, I, I, if I'm being honest, I would I would <laughs> I would say not really, and that's largely just again because we have such a strong team. Um, there are things I, I wake up and say, "Oh man, um, this is going to be an interesting one." But we're really really fortunate to just have some all star outstanding people who have been around uh, the work of building tomorrow for quite some time be they on the board or on staff here or even in Uganda. And so um, I think one of the lessons I've sort of learned along the way is that when you do open up your email and things seem sort of insurmountable, um, taking it bit by bit and making sure that you engage the people on your team who need to be a part of it, you'll be able to get through it. What's something you think you could do better? Um. Well, I I don't know how much time you have, <laughs> um, but I think um, I, I think one of the things that I always feel like I can do better is to engage with m- members of my team a little bit more. Um, one of the things that I feel when I get into the office often is that I, I haven't been here in a while, or it's either that or I'm not going to be here in a couple of days. So my inclination is to sort of sit down with myself and just get through the next bit of things that I've listed for myself that I need to get done. And sometimes I think people who are on your team really need to be reminded about why you're doing what you need to do and where this is all leading, where this is all going. And so, um, you know, even this this morning, I, I spent a little bit of time talking with a few folks on our team about my most recent trip. One of our staff members got married. I happened to be there to be able to go to his wedding. And just being able to connect a little bit about what that was like. And they all know this staff member. And so they're asking questions about the wedding and all that kind of stuff. It was actually really, it sounds sort of silly and it wasn't anything work related, but it helps engender that rapport and, and help keeps, I think it helps to keep people engaged to know what's, what's happening. So definitely, um, sort of following up and engaging my own team, I think sometimes is is um, one of the many ways I always seem to fall short. You and your wife, Kristen, are both very engulfed in your work. It's it's a huge part of your life. Uh, you, you also have a son, Gabe, who is two. Yeah. And you travel a lot. Kristen travels a lot. Um, I've interviewed her for my other podcast on I'll Have Another, and... I, as a friend of yours and, and kind of a, someone looking on the outside into your life a little bit, because we get to have dinner together sometimes, yeah. I find myself just wondering, how do you maintain, I can't use the word balance, but just how do you maintain the the drive to keep getting on those airplanes, you know, and then like coming home and doing the dad thing and you guys have to take turns with so much because she travels and then you travel. How do you, how do you do it? Well, I think I am, you know, a a two, two and a half year old does not uh, really care about what you're doing in Uganda or what his mom might be doing. He did know you were in Uganda. He does. He can say Uganda. Because I asked him when we had dinner the other night, where's daddy? And he said Uganda. Yep. No, he, he knows. But I think one of the at least one of the drivers for me, and I, I don't speak for Kristen, but I think she might share some of the same sentiment, is that um, 
I hope that what we do and how we choose, how, how we're able to spend our time on a, in a professional capacity is, can, can be a really good, uh, influence and example for him, uh, when he gets old enough to recognize that, that, you know, his parents were around as much as they could be. And when they were away, the work that they were doing was worth doing and was work that, um, we always ought to try to find a way to support and be a part of whether you're doing it directly you're enabling someone else to do it. Um, so it is, you know, it doesn't make, doesn't make getting on a plane all that, uh, you know, all that easy or sometimes appealing, especially when you sort of get ready for some of the longer trips that, um, that we tend to go on with some frequency. Um, but I think it's, I, I think I'm sort of, uh, comforted by the idea that if I can lead by example and he can get to a point where he sees that, his parents have been traveling for, you know, to, to advance good work. Um, then that'll be, that'll pay due, pay its dues at some point. What do you do when you're on an airplane for 18 hours? <laughs> um, well, I finished a whole book on my way home what a book? couple of days ago. I, I read, um, go set a watchman by Harper Lee. Go set a watchman. Yes. Um, is that a for fun book or a learning book? No, it was, uh, well, every book is a, is hopefully both. Um, but this was, uh, um, was a book I'd been wanting to read for a while and just hadn't had a chance to. So um, between uh, leaving from uh, Entebbe and, and getting to, um, where did I go? I get it. So that book lasted me three flights, I guess. So you're not working though? You're mostly, so, re- do you do both? No, I mean, there's a mix of both. You know, when you have, um, I, I do the eight hour flight pretty well now. That's it. Ironically, that's sort of the, when you go into, uh, East Africa, usually there's an eight-hour flight from Europe okay. on your way out and then an eight-hour flight to the States. That's so split and, up. Yeah. And I have those down pretty You know p- what pretty you're well. doing in those yeah, eight I, hours. I, I can sort of, it's almost like sleeping. You sort of know when it's time that this flight's almost going to be over. Um, but, you know, a big thing that I, I try to do is just try to get on the next time zone um, because it makes a big difference. As you said, when we, usually when I get back or Kristen gets back, we're diving right back into being a parent. And yeah, you're probably to, dying to see them. Well, yeah, and you're also trying to relieve the other person because they're about to kill you <laughs> for not being around. Um, so, you know, on Tuesday, it was trying to get enough sleep so that I wouldn't be so um, rocked by a seven-hour time difference and be able to get up and take Gabe on a walk to see diggers and dump trucks yesterday morning. <laughs> um, so, you know, just trying to get caught up on work try to get some sleep and then watch movies or kill time. Yeah, but we are talking to someone, just so everybody knows, who does like to travel because this is a guy who jumped on a plane just because he wanted to be <laughs> on the first true. direct and flight. And that was actually a year ago, exactly a year it ago was? today. It, exactly a year ago. I was just thinking about that. We got a direct flight from Indy to London. Paris. Paris. Okay, Paris. I knew that. Uh, and George was like, I'm just going to get on the flight just, just so go. I could be on it yeah. for no reason. Well, so I've always, that. so, so I've always had this, um, I, I am fascinated by air travel. I mean, the fact that I was, um, essentially two days ago was in Africa and am here. Here we are in um, Indianapolis. Right. I think is just amazing. Yeah. I mean, it really it you, take, take sort of the cost of a ticket out of the equation sure. and the fact that you can literally just walk onto an airplane and go somewhere. I continue to be, uh, enamored with that and think that's really cool. Um, I also 
you know, mentioned to you, I love this city. I love Indianapolis. I think we have a lot of really good things going on. And I was just tickled and thought it was so awesome that we now could go um, nonstop straight to Europe. (laughs) And I thought, well, I'm going to do this. And it was fun. It was actually a lot of fun. Um, Did you literally come back the same day? I did. I I (laughs) wanted to be on the first flight that went and the first flight that came back or that came. um, Were there other weirdos like you on the flight? um, Well, I wouldn't call the governor a weirdo, but the governor (laughs) was on the flight um, on the way home. Um, And there were a couple other people, yes, who, who were on one of the flights just because they wanted to be on the inaugural. And that's always been something that I just thought would be fun to do because they, you know, they had a, here in Indy, they had a French party. Okay. Um, I was wondering about and that. And there was a huge, they lined up all the pace cars um, right on the, off the wing of the plane um, and did sort of a real fancy to do. Uh, and then on the flip side from, you know, I mean, it's sort of fun seeing the French get deal. excited about the fact that they now have this flight to Indianapolis. I'm sure they Indianapolis. didn't care as much as we did um, on the outbound <laughs> side of it. But uh, I just, I, I, I think I'm one of those people who has a lot of pride in where they come from. Um, and maybe in a, if, if Building Tomorrow hadn't worked out, I would have been like the creator of the 317 shirts or like okay. all of the, you know, like the indie, you know, go uh, sort of go show off and uh-huh. wear your, wear your um, hometown with pride. Um, so it was just fun to do that and fun to see that, um, our airport is being able to attract a lot more, uh, a lot more passengers because people are realizing that maybe there are some good things that are happening here. You know, as I age, I am finding that pride thing and where I come from too. I didn't come from Indianapolis, but just an hour south. Uh, and even in my my podcast and my job, I tend to talk about it a lot. I just did a voiceover for a video, and last minute I added in, "I'm a proud Indiana yeah. Hoosier." Yeah. I just, I don't know. As I age, it just becomes more important to me. Well, and I think, you know, I have a chance, um, you know, if we're being really honest here, the uh, hotbed of international organizations doesn't happen to be Indianapolis. Um, so, Where does it happen to be? Uh, I mean, I, last week I was at a conference in Nairobi where um, London, New York, um, you know, D.C., uh, Geneva, some of the places that are much more synonymous with organizations and entities that support this kind of work. Um, and it's all, it's so lovely when people, you know, say, so where are you from? And, and I say Indianapolis and they're, it's, it's almost like they're trying to pronounce my last name. It's just like (laughs) confusion, uh, where they are like, wait, where is that? And, I get a kick out of being able to share that story and, and, and why we're from where we are. And I think that's a, it's a good thing. All right. Last building tomorrow question. I think what does it take to build a successful staying life-changing model? That's not going to go anywhere with an organization like building tomorrow. Ooh, that's a loaded question because you're implying that we're staying and well, we're going to be been, around. I mean, and... you launched in 2007, <laughs> 2008. True. I mean, that's you've been around for we over have, 10 years. We have. No, I mean, um, I, I, I think the I, – I would say, first of all, it's really good people, mm. right? Um, and I come back to this often just because I think it's so critical that you have people who um, will be – cheerleaders and will guide you and will be excited for the success, but they'll also ask you really tough questions. And we've had a number of really good people, I think, who who do that, 
have done that in the past and continue to do that today. Um, so I think re- a really good team is, is fundamental to that. And I also think something else that we've talked about, which I think married with the team is important. And, th- and that's just being committed to sustainability and being locally led um, and really recognizing that if you're going to move the needle, you're going to have to do that with the people that you're trying to walk alongside. And, uh, and without doing that, without putting that sort of right on the forefront, I think you put yourself at a disadvantage. What's something you're most proud of with building tomorrow? You know, we, on, on Saturday, we had a lunch for all of what we call our community development officers. And these are, um, we have nine of them who have been, every time we build a school, they go out and live in that community and work with the community to make sure that the school gets built um, according to plan and that the community is engaged in the process. And we were sort of honoring them on Saturday. And I had an immense amount of pride listening to all of them talk about their stories and talk about the experiences they've had living in the community because it was very clear that they had, they were taking their roles really seriously and they really enjoyed being that entrenched in a community to the point that they knew everyone who was on site. They knew everyone who was going to be successful uh, or help them be successful. And one of our guys, Jumba, who has um, been with us for 10 years, he has overseen construction at 16 sites. Um, this this was really fun. He said, um, he said, I have a simple but serious story. And he said, at Jita, where we first, my first school, um, where we first started working, there's a boy there who's now in university. Mm. And the fact that he knows that, that was 16 schools ago for him. 10 years ago that he's still in touch with the people who were there and they still want to share with him. He was telling me that there's no less than two or three people from all of the 16 communities that he's worked in that still communicate with him today. Wow. And I think that's just, you know, I I think that's a testament to the, to their work. I think that's awesome. And, you know, another thing I was, I had the chance to do Saturday was go to a wedding of one of our staff members and, uh, our, we had about 22, 23 Building Tomorrow staff who were at that wedding. Was this in Uganda? In Uganda. And they were the last 23 people standing. They oh, shut that it. party down. <laughs> was it fun? It was a lot of fun. But it was, again, a source of pride because you felt like, I mean, how cool was it that these are all colleagues and they're all yeah. coming out and they gave their whole Saturday. Trust mm-hmm. me, they gave their whole Saturday <laughs> for that wedding. And they were there all the way to the end and having a blast. And wow. I just thought... How awesome is how awesome it is to be a part of a team where this is the culture. Um, they want to be there. They want to be there. They were they were so excited for their colleague, um, and it was a family affair. And I think that's that was very cool. Fifty one thousand nine hundred and forty one children enrolled in seventy seven schools. Mm-hmm. Did, is that right? Yeah, and then also through all of our work that our fellows have done. As wow. Well. That's so cool. What's your vision? And like, if you could, how old are you? 35. 55 year old George. Right. 
Gabe's you and me both. Gabe's graduated college. Yeah, let's hope so. What do you, if you have to think, what building tomorrow is in fifty five in thirty years or twenty years when you're fifty five? What do you see? Well, you know, I would say, as as long as it still has a commitment to making sure that things are being done the right way, um, and as long as we still have a really good team. Um, I think it could look, it could, you know, it could be in a whole bunch of different countries. It could still be working just in Uganda. I really have no idea what it might look like, but I think as long as those two things are still fundamentally true of the organization, um, then I'll be pretty thrilled. Love it. What's your biggest hope and dream for your son and any future kids you might have? Hmm. I hope that they, I mean, I, I hope that, you know, in, in when I think about Gabe and sort of what he may want to do or what he may want to become, I hope that he has the same kinds of experiences that I got to have as a kid where he was able to really engage with the world um, in a really meaningful way. I mean, one of the things that I got to do, um, which unfortunately doesn't exist anymore, but there was a program in town uh, called Y Press, which allowed and invited young people to essentially work at the Star, um, but through a program that was really curated just for for kids around um, issues and and stories that were impacting young people, and that was an incredibly eye opening experience for me because I had the chance to. Um, to interview, you know, people from street kids who were running in tunnels, um, doing, you know, essentially dealing in drugs on the U.S.-Mexican border to Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And how old were you? Er, and I was 11, 12, what? 13, 14 wow. years old. And while that particular experience doesn't exist anymore, those are the kinds of opportunities that I know played a really big hand in me being able to do the work that I do now and sort of see the world that, that, um, or see the world in the, the perspective that I see it now. And I would hope that experiences like that are ones that we can help provide for, for Gabe and, um, and not just him, but other kids as well. Cause I think, again, they go a long way to help, um, help people see things in a positive light. Yeah. I mean, that's has so much to do with your parents because at 11, you're not going to just, you aren't going to naturally seek out that opportunity. <laughs> and you won't know that you can seek it Right. Out. Exactly. You won't have any idea. So that's motivation as a parent myself and probably for anybody listening to put those opportunities in front of your kids' faces and try to help them understand why it's important. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, being able to seek, I mean, that's, that's where, again, I think sort of selfishly in a way, my hope for my son is that I'm, as a parent, uh, able to navigate enough opportunities that he's able to thrive because I think, I think it's really, and those are the kinds of things, they're little things, right? That, you know, I think people sort of look to your parents, people ask these questions and they think that, you know, there was one sort of big monumental moment where a conversation was had and that sort of set the kids straight and whatnot. But I think in my case, it was a series of several decisions and, and opportunities that, um, my parents were able to put in front of me um, that I would hope to be able to do the same because I think they were really 
instrumental. Gosh, it's so easy here in America to just do, to just put your head down and send your kid to school, go to work, your kid does soccer, you come home, you eat dinner, and to forget about stuff like that because you're just in the hustle and bustle of what you do. And just that's what you do. You do sports. You go to school. And um, I hope that you mentioning this and, and bringing that to the forefront encourages people listening to make it a priority. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, I think it was helpful for me and certainly would love to be able to pass that on. All right, George, this podcast is called the Illuminate Podcast. And we, Kristen, your wife, Kristen, uh, Emily, and I came up with this name because when we were envisioning the podcast, we were thinking, who do we want to interview and what do we want people listening to get out of those interviews? And um, the word illuminate just struck us all because we thought of stories that could be told that highlight and illuminate uh, inspiring and important stories. So who is someone in your life that um, illuminates your life, that, that makes it happier, encouraging, and positive, inspiring? Well, I mean, a cop-out is going to be my son um, in terms of happier and sort of just putting a completely different perspective on things. I mean, um, you mentioned sort of the difficulties of traveling long distances. And I think one of the biggest is that you're not around to hear what the latest word is Mm -hmm. that um, he's spouting off or the latest thing that he's seeing. Um, In the car yesterday, he kept trying to tell us that he saw three cherry pickers um, and a two and a half year old trying to get out that line, three cherry pickers is really hard. (laughs) So I I think that's just like the simple, I mean, that's the, the, sort of slam dunk answer for me because there's a lot of happiness. There's a lot of joy um, that's present in my life because of him. I've said it before and I'll continue to say it. It's the cutest age, two and a half. Yeah, I know you've given me that warning uh, off the air. He's peaking cuteness, I, I know. know. And you've said that he's peaked and that that's really had me concerned. <laughs> there are other things he can peek <laughs> at in other parts of his life, but Peak cuteness is when they're just spitting out those words. Yeah, yeah. Three, I mean, three cherry pickers. That's a hard (laughs) sentence to get out, even for me. And and it was pretty awesome. Our two two and a half year old, uh, our third is the same age as as George's uh, first, and he is on this kick now where he says, "Thank you, mom." Doesn't say mommy. (laughs) Doesn't say dad. I just thank you, mom. And it's just the way they say it. It's so cute. Okay. Uh, what's one thing that you are just loving right now? And this doesn't have to be deep, but it also can be if you want it to be. Um, I um, I love the springtime and just being able to, I think one of the things I enjoy is the ability to just get my hands and feet dirty in a lawn and like gardening and mm. stuff like that, which is totally outside of the work that we do every day. So being able to like come home and do that, um, I find awesome. And so... Uh, now's a great time of year around here because that's pretty uh you're able to do a lot of that you have put together a pretty meticulous and awesome garden bed in your backyard i've seen it i'm well, jealous i want my husband to do the same that's not that's <laughs> not what brings him I'll, joy. Uh, I'll, I'll send glenn a note and let yeah. him know but that that brings you joy that doesn't bring him joy so i need to let it go well um we'll find a way to make sure you get those beds 
So we came up with the idea for this podcast at our little supper club. Not you, not our husbands, the females of the You know, group. the husbands don't really get to do much at these supper clubs, but <laughs> that's maybe another, maybe that's, an, maybe, maybe that's another uh You're saying we talk podcast. more than you guys? What? Uh, what's one of your favorite uh, recipes you could share with the listeners? Recipes. We can pass. We can skip this if we want. No, I mean, I think the best thing in life is homemade ice cream. Oh, yeah. You guys made us homemade and, ice cream one time. Yeah. And so... What, do you know the recipe offhand? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's two cups of heavy cream. Okay. It's a cup of milk. It's three-fourths of a cup of sugar, um, some salt, and then whatever you want in your ice cream. And so for us, the house flavor is usually mint Oreo. So it's a package of Oreos crushed up. Just crush them up. Crush them up. Well, you know, you leave some whole because that's always fun when you find those. Oh, it's the best. Right. But and it's a little bit soggy, but still kind of crunchy. Mm-hmm, that's the best. Um, and uh, the big piece, so you got to make sure you have salt in there. People always, oh, yeah. always underestimate the salt, which is a real shame. Um, and um, if you care, sort of a, a little bit, at least in our case, of peppermint and a little bit of vanilla. And voila. Love it. So good. Last question, George. It's a big one. That's a shame. This is fun. I know. Keep going. I know. I want to go forever. What's your one message you'd like to send to the world? One message? I just, you know, like we sort of touched on this a little bit earlier, but I think it's increasingly difficult to see that humanity gets stripped from day-to-day conversation and people being even more and more reticent to connect with people who may see the world in a different way um, or believe different things. And I think now more than ever, that's just something that we we need. Um, and that's, that's really key. So um, just, you know, I think that is something that, that really uh, resonates with me and just being able to find common ground with, um, with the person who you're sitting next to about something that could be completely benign but still knowing that that's an important thing. I mean, I think another thing too that I would just sort of throw out is, um, you know, the last couple of days have been odd in, in having lost a good friend in a very, uh, very flukish way. Um, and in a, in nothing short of a tragedy and just realizing that I think people say it, but they don't oftentimes mean it. And, or understand it and it's just the fact that we are here for an amount of time that no one is is guaranteed or knows about and and so how you choose to live your life and making sure that you live it to the fullest every day is so so true um and and something that is uh, yeah for me sort of especially uh front and center right now Thank you so much, George, for coming on the show and sharing your personal story and the story of Building Tomorrow. You guys can learn more about Building Tomorrow if you go to buildingtomorrow.com. You can also find them on Instagram. They are BLDG Tomorrow. You can learn more about the Illuminate Podcast if you go to theilluminatepodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram. We're the Illuminate Podcast over there. If you enjoyed this show, we would appreciate it so much if you would consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks so much for listening today, and we'll see you next time on the Illuminate Podcast. Podcast.